So tonight, what we are going to talk about is the legacy of leadership, okay? The legacy of leadership. And like I said last week, what we talked about is when you decide to follow Jesus, what God does is not just save you. A lot of times we talk about that in, you know, popular culture. We talk about being saved, and what that means is being saved from your sin. And we believe that wholeheartedly at our church, that every single person needs that. Everybody needs to be saved from sin. But when we look at the Bible, what we see is you're not meant just to be saved from something, but you're meant to be saved into something as well. And what Paul showed us last week is when you are saved, when you become a follower of Jesus, what happens is you're not just saved from your sin, but you're saved into a new family, a new spiritual family called the church that has older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and it encompasses the entirety of humanity. That was what we talked about last week. And tonight, what we're going to talk about is how that spiritual family is meant to have leadership, okay? How the family is meant to have leadership. Now, this is an admittedly difficult topic for me to speak about because I am one of the leaders in the church, and I'm getting ready to talk to you about how you are meant to relate to the leaders in the church. So I feel like sort of, you know, I've kind of stacked the deck, and I can't come to this with like complete, uh, a completely unbiased perspective. As well as I know that our church consists mostly of people in their 20s, some people in their 30s, a few people in their 40s, and our generations are largely people, I mean, if you study history, we are the most skeptical of those in leadership and those in authority, not just in the church, but outside of the church, in American history. In American history, this is just the way it works. This, I mean, there's a multitude of factors that go into this, and I'm kind of a history nerd, so I won't go too much into this. But if you study our parents' generation, our parents' generation is marked by two primary events, the uh, Richard Nixon Watergate scandal as well as the Vietnam War. And both of those events largely were marred by uh, conflict. They were largely marred by distrust. They were largely marred by uh, lying by people who were in places of authority. And so what happened was a generation of people who, on the whole, largely trusted people in authority people who had leadership, uh, came to a place after those events where they said, can anybody who leads, can anybody in authority, can they really be trusted? This hasn't happened just in politics or just in Washington. This has happened in the church as well over the past several decades. Whereas a generation ago, people who were in places of ministry, people who were pastors or people who were priests, were largely respected. Now, if you look at statistics, this is one of the least respected professions in American culture. The reason why is that the church has been marred by, uh, basically, uh, sorry, the church has been marred by people uh, just breaking people's trust over and over and over again. And so if you look in the 1980s, there's the televangelists uh, who were embezzling money from old women. If you look in the Catholic church recently, you find out that there's countless pedophiles who are priests. The church tries to cover it up. And what's been left is a generation of people who, when you come to a text like this, and you're told that you're meant to have spiritual authorities over you in your life, you must think that the Apostle Paul has no idea what is going on, and he doesn't know what he's talking about, and this doesn't apply to you just because you don't like it. And what we're going to be challenged with tonight is even though we don't, may not like it, and even though it may not be culturally popular for us to have spiritual authorities in our life, what Paul's going to say is even though you may have had a negative experience, and maybe you could come up and tell me about some time where you had an interaction with a priest or a pastor or somebody you grew up on, and and it made you never want to be a part of a church formally again. What Paul's going to say is it's not a matter of you not having leadership that's spiritual in your life whatsoever, but instead that you are meant to have the right kind of spiritual leadership in your church. I remember getting into a conversation with a guy at Coffee at the Point, which is the coffee shop I hang out with, 
uh, hang out at all the time. And I got into a conversation. I found this guy was starting a new church in the city, just like I was. And I was like, man, tell me. I mean, that's great. Tell me about your city. Where do you meet? What do you do? And he was like, well, you know, we get together, me and my roommates. We hang out in my living room. We talk about sort of spiritual things for an hour. And then after that, we eat spaghetti together. And I was like, okay. Well, I mean, that sounds interesting. Like, are you a pastor? Are you, I mean, who's, like, who's kind of leading this thing? He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Young people don't like leadership anymore, so we don't do that. We don't do that. And I was just like, man, like what you're doing sounds a lot more like Chandler and Ross and the gang from Friends hanging out at Central Perk than it does like a church like Paul's describing here. And so what you need to know then is if you believe that the church isn't meant to have leadership, if you have negative experiences and you believe then that the family of God is not meant to have leadership, it's not a matter of if you're meant to have leadership, it's a matter of having the right kind of leadership in your life. And it's not reasonable just to dismiss it because you had a negative experience growing up. That's a nonsensical way to live. For me, in sixth grade, I got food poisoning when I went to Boy Scout camp because I ate chicken that had been underprepared. You know what I did after that? I ate food again. I just ate the right kind of food again. And in the same way, what Paul's saying is, you can't dismiss something just because you had a negative experience. But instead, we were meant to find the right kind of leadership in our lives. So here's what Paul's going to do for us, okay? Here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to give us three points, okay? Three points for the way that we should have leaders in our life and the way that the church should set up leadership. But points doesn't really capture uh, maybe the robust nature of what Paul's trying to communicate. As I was thinking about it this week, I thought about it as more like balance beams, okay? Balance beams, you know, uh, like from the Olympics, you know, the idea of a balance beam is not to fall to the left or fall to the right. And what Paul's going to do is give us three major principles for the way that we should relate to people who have spiritual leadership. And our tendency is going to be to fall to one side or the other. And what Paul's going to say is walk the narrow way, walk the hard way and maintain the tension. Okay? You with me? So here is Paul's first, we'll call it balance beam. Okay? It's this. For those of you who follow Jesus, you need to demand excellence of your leaders, okay? You need to demand excellence of your leaders, but you need to be quick to honor your leaders when they provide excellence. I'm going to say that again. Be number one. You need to be quick to demand excellence of your leaders, but when your leaders demand or when your leaders provide excellence, you need to be quick to honor them, okay? Now let's look at verse 17. Let's look at verse 17, and Paul writes this. He says, let the elders who rule well. Now, let me, let me stop there real quick. Let the elders who rule well. If you go back to chapter 3, which we covered a few weeks ago, in chapter 3, what Paul did was he set up what leadership in God's family in the church should look like. And he said there's two roles. There's deacons, and that literally means servants. These are people who head up basically the service aspects of the church. Our church doesn't have anybody who's formally a deacon yet, though we are moving more and more in that direction as we have many, many people serve in major ways for us. And the church has elders. And what that means then is the church has overseers. That's all it means. These are the people who run the affairs of the church. That's what Paul says here. He says they rule well. Rule is kind of a loaded term. All it means is these are men who run the affairs of the church. Our church has two elders. I'm one of the elders and Andy is one of the elders. So our church has two elders. We don't have any deacons, but we're moving more and more into the place where we're going to have deacons. And he says this. He says, let the elders who rule well, rule well. Well, here's what Paul's saying is that it's okay to expect of your leaders, that they direct the affairs of the church. Well, you should expect that. You should expect excellence from your leaders. And that should be one of the major criteria for why you are part of a church. A lot of times people are part of churches where they get out and every single week they are tired of the leadership. They are fed up with the sermons. They can't, they can't, 
they can't put up with it. And the congregation largely puts up with it because, you know, in the church, we're supposed to be nice to each other. In the church, you know, I mean, it's kind of whoever has the best desires wins. And the guy looks like he's trying really, really hard. And so we're just going to let him keep doing what he's doing. But what Paul's saying is, is in the end, results do matter. Results do matter. And it's okay to expect the elders, the men who are running the affairs of the church to lead well. Okay? You can expect that. But Paul says this, let them who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So Paul says double honor. So that means two different kinds of honor, and it's this. One is showing honor through showing respect. And what it means then is instead of backbiting your leaders, instead of uh, maybe gossiping about your leaders, instead of always complaining about your leaders or complaining to your leaders, you are eager to show respect. That's one of the ways you show honor. And the second is this, is that you're eager to show respect by giving generously so the leaders can make a living off what they do. If they give their lives to leading the church, that they, can, that they are willing or able to make their living off of doing that. And here's what Paul says. He says this, verse 18, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, this is one of the times where I think Paul has Tourette's syndrome because I'm like, you were just talking about relating to leaders and paying your leaders well and honoring your leaders. And then you're talking about ox muzzles. Like, did you get confused? Did, you know, we lose a section? Like what happened here? But it's actually a pretty interesting point. He's actually quoting a section of scripture from the Old Testament in a book called Deuteronomy. And it's a section where God is telling his people, he's telling those who follow him, how they are meant to relate to other people. And he says this, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, these cultures were largely agrarian. I know you're like, how does this relate to my life? Bear with me, okay? These cultures were largely agrarian. And what would happen is they would come and they would dispense seed. They would dispense grain. And they would have these oxen. They have these large farm animals come and they would tread out the grain. But the pagan nations, because the kind of the primary way of them thinking was efficiency and getting stuff done, they would put a muzzle on the mouth of an ox. Why? So they couldn't eat the grain that they were treading out. And so what would happen, it's a pretty gruesome image actually, is that these oxen would literally be worked to death. So they'd be there working, treading out the grain so that they would produce fruit. And as they were producing fruit, they couldn't eat the grain that was right in front of them. The pagans would work them to death. And then when the oxen would die, they would pull the corpse to the side. They would put in a new oxen and they would keep working them. And what, Paul, or what God did back in Deuteronomy is he came to the people of God and he says, that's the way that the unbelievers work. And that followers of God who have experienced the grace of God are a kind and generous people. And you will not treat your animals like that. And then Paul takes that over and he says, the church of God is not to take care of their pastors like that as well. Now, I love this image. It's a cool image because I get compared to an ox. It's a masculine image. It's muscular. You know, it's tough. It's a tough image. And it's really, really appropriate. Because when I think about what my job is, working full-time for this church, it's a lot like being an ox. It's a lot like being an ox. It's very unglamorous. It's very hard. It's, it's the hardest job I've ever had. I've had countless jobs. And this is by far the hardest job that I've ever had. And it's just kind of like, I just plot out. I just plot out. I work hard to try to prepare sermons. I work hard to try to counsel people well. I work hard to be there when people's lives uh, are... are are tumultuous and they need some help. I work hard to be an encourager and develop, develop more leaders. A lot of it's very unglamorous. A lot of it's behind the scenes. A lot of it's doing administrative stuff. And it's just like an ox. It's just 
plodding along, foot by foot by foot by foot by foot by foot. Andy does the exact same. And it's just a beautiful image of what I do full time for this church. Just try to pull this thing forward the best I absolutely can. And Andy does the exact same. And what Paul says then to the church is that rather than working your pastor to death, rather than not providing for your pastor, rather rather than killing your pastor, and when that ox dies, you go and you hire a new ox because you take resumes and then you kill that ox. Instead, you take care. You love, like we said last week, we are a family and we take good care of each other. That's what we do. That's what we do. That's all that Paul is saying is that we show honor. When, When you feel like your leaders have demonstrated excellence, you show honor by respecting us and you show honor by giving generously so the church can be paid. Now, I understand that's, that's somewhat uh, unpopular. I'm not trying to make a pitch for more money. Um, in fact, if anybody goes into ministry, unless they're on TV, uh, and tries to make money off it, if anybody goes into church planning and tries to make money off of it, they are absolute fools. They're absolute idiots. In fact, when I was being mentored uh, and so, trying to discern whether or not I was going to go into ministry, I had my mentor actually tell me, he said, if you're going to go into this, I, I would just recommend you saying to yourself, if I can do absolutely anything else, other than going into the ministry, I would do it. I would do it. And now that I've experienced it firsthand, I completely agree. You don't go into it for the money. You don't go into it for the prestige. You don't go into the fame. We don't really get any of those things here, especially in this city where 95% of people want nothing to do with the church. But instead, we go into it because if we didn't do it, we wouldn't be able to sleep at night. We wouldn't be able to sleep at night because we love you We love this city. We love this neighborhood. We love the vision of what God can do. And we can't imagine giving our lives to anything else. We can't. And none of this is sort of a subtle way of me saying, hey, we don't feel respected here. Hey, you need to give more. Hey, we're going to pass the plate so I can take Megan to Disney World. We can buy a new car. Like, we're not, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. In fact, I love, I love, this is, this is the hardest job I've ever had, but it's, it's the best job I've ever had. And I'm, I'm being completely sincere when I say that, that I mean that my dream, my dream, if God will let it, is for me to die as the pastor of the Summit Church, hopefully many decades from now. That would, that, that, that's my, that would be my dream come true because I love, I love this environment. I love this church. I love pastoring you. I do. I love it. I absolutely love it. But here's the thing is we would be fools to think that it's always going to be good. It's always going to be harmonious. What God says is the church is a family. And what we need to do is be forward thinking to know that Satan is a homewrecker. And he's going to come in. He's going to try to divide. He's going to try to have the church be mad at the leadership. He's going to try to have the leadership be mad at the church. And so we prayerfully, thoughtfully think forward. We're forward thinking and we consider the fact that we need to be kind to one another. We need to take care of one another. We need to protect one another. We need to love one another because that's what a family does. Okay? So balance being number one is we demand excellence of leaders, but we're quick to honor those who provide excellence. Okay? Here's the second. You need to be slow to accuse leaders, okay? You need to be slow to bring accusation to leaders, but you need to be quick to hold leaders to a higher standard, okay? You need to be slow to accuse those who are in leadership, but you need to be quick. You need to be quick to hold leaders to a higher standard. Now let's look at verse 19. Here's what Paul says. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three 
witnesses. And something that's been the same for the last 2,000 years, and it's that people love to bring false accusations on leaders because there's something really enticing about it, right? We all enjoy gossip because there's something really enticing about the possibility. Our culture is set up. We love to see leaders fail. We love to see leaders uh, have sort of outlandish things accused of them. And it's much easier to make the claim and then try to find the sources later than it is to actually back it up. But what Paul's saying is the family of God, those who follow Jesus don't act that way. We flip it on its head. But you need to understand that everything in culture is pushing you to do the opposite. We live in a 24-hour news craze media. And, and the way that news is reported is largely as soon as something that could possibly in some way be true, it's reported And then people try to find sources to back it up, and then they retract it if it's not true, right? And on the whole, leaders are guilty until proven innocent. And it's really hard to prove yourself innocent. That is just the culture that you and I live within. In fact, actually, it was interesting. This week, I was looking at the fact that because reputable news sources reported the deaths of Barack Obama, of Kanye West, of Snoop Dogg, as well as Nelson Mandela, they became trending topics on Twitter that all of those people had died, all in 2011. This all happened in 2011. Actually, my favorite false report of somebody dying is Jackie Chan. In August, in August, it was reported for the third time that Jackie Chan had died, and Twitter blew up. Twitter blew up that he had died. And in fact, if you go to Facebook, there is now a Facebook group that has over 150,000 people that says, rest in peace, Jackie Chan. That's the way that our culture works. It's reported first, and who cares if it's true? And what Paul is saying is the family of God doesn't work that way. Instead, we are slow. We protect our leaders. We are slow to bring accusation. We're slow to gossip. We're slow to slander. Because Accusing a leader is such a substantial claim to make. But Paul says this. He says, we have to be quick. We have to be quick to hold leaders to a higher standard. And here's what he says. Verse 20. As for those who persist in sin. So for those leaders who continually persist in egregious sin that disqualifies them from being pastors of the church. For those people, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying because a leader has public influence, there is public accountability. Because a leader has been entrusted with influence, he is held to a higher standard. Here's what it very practically means. It means that if I do something, as one of the pastors and elders of this church, if I do something that disqualifies me from being a pastor and elder, if I do something, like I cheat on my wife, if I uh, embezzle money from the church, if you see me down at the Blake Street Tavern and I'm getting drunk, like, I've been disqualified from pastoring and shepherding this church. And what it means then is that I am dealt with publicly. I mean that. I haven't done those things, okay? I haven't done those things. But it means if I do and I disqualify myself, I am brought up here. I am dealt with publicly for all to see. People don't come up. Andy doesn't come up. And he doesn't say he had some personal affairs to attend to. He doesn't say he got a job somewhere else. He decided to move back home. No, you know what happened. You know why I'm disqualified. And it's dealt with publicly. Because I have public influence, I am dealt with because I have public responsibility as well. And I am dealt with in the sphere of influence that God has entrusted me with. This is the heart of leadership. This is the heart of leadership that you are not just given influence, but you are given responsibility as well. And this is what people don't like. This is what people, I, I talk to people all the time. I talk to people very, very often who, who are pursuing some sort of leadership, anything from leadership within our church to, to, to something like starting their own church. 
And my observation is, is a lot of times, very, very often what people like, people like the influence. They love a title. They love to be able to uh, preach sermons. They love the fact that they may get paid for what they're doing, but they don't like the fact that they're going to be held to a higher standard. They don't like the fact that they're going to have, uh, or they don't like the fact that they're going to be held to a uh, higher standard or be, have public responsibility to other, to other people. And what Paul is saying here is no influence without responsibility. No influence without public responsibility. Let me, let me just even ask you a question here. Has God called you to lead? Has God called you to lead? Now, what, probably for the first 15 minutes of this, most of you have thought, this probably doesn't apply to my life. Because, you know, I'm not going to go to seminary. I don't have any desire to preach sermons. I don't have any desire to be an elder here. But here's the question. Has God called you to lead? And I would say this. I would say, if you follow Jesus, God has called you to some sort of leadership position. And this applies to your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has called you to some sort of leadership position. It may not be. It may not be preaching sermons. It may not be a pastor. It may not be in a preacher. But you know what it may be? It may mean that you are a leader of other people in your workplace of what it means to live and to have a godly family. That's what it may mean. It may mean that in your neighborhood, you lead by example of what it looks like to, to care for the good of the city and to care for the good of the neighborhood the way that God cares for the good of the city and the good of the neighborhood. It may mean that you are the leader in your family. And my question to you then is, are you ready then? Are you ready to not just have public influence? Because it's not a matter of if you have public influence. It's a matter of how you have public influence Are you ready for the responsibility that goes with that? Are you ready to be held to a higher standard? If people look at your life, is there a difference between the public and the private? Are you an open book? Are you the type of person that there's no secrets that if people looked at you, they would say, that's not the type of man. That's not the type of woman who has the credibility to lead. Because God has given you a place of leadership. He has entrusted you with a place of leadership. And the the question is, are you living the kind of life that qualifies you to leverage that responsibility the best that you possibly can? And if it's not, if you have secrets, if you have things that are very different in your private life that are different than your public life, what needs to change? What needs to change? We say all the time that this is a family that has been brought together by grace. And because we are a family of grace, it is okay not to be okay. We say that all the time. It's okay not to be okay, but because we believe that grace brings transformation, because we believe grace transforms the ugliest and darkest areas of our lives, we say that it's okay not to be okay, but it's just not okay to stay there. And so where in your life, if God has entrusted you with a place of leadership, do you need to ask the grace of God to transform you and to bring redemption? Where is that? God has given you a place of leadership. Does your life match up to a place where you're ready for that sort of responsibility and ready to be an open book? Theme number one, you're, you're supposed to demand excellence of your leaders. But when those leaders provide excellence, be quick to honor them. Theme number two, you need to be slow to accuse your leaders, but you need to be quick to hold them to a higher standard. Theme number three is this, is the church needs to produce leaders quickly, but you need to be slow to trust people with leadership, okay? The church develops leaders quickly. We develop leaders as quickly as possible but we're slow to trust people with leadership. Now, the entire thrust of this letter is Paul saying that in my absence, when I go, when it comes for me to die, there needs to be more leaders who are ready to take the baton and continue the mission of God. 
It needs to continue without me. And so this thing needs to not be built on just one man. But in my absence, the mission continues forward. So develop more leaders. Quickly develop more and more leaders. This was Paul's heart. This is our church's heart as well. I was telling some guys that we were, we're developing as leaders right now. That for us as a church, we want to be the New England Patriots and not the Indianapolis Colts. Now, I realize half of you have now turned off because you're like, I hate sports analogies. And that's all you do is sports analogies. One, that's all I know. And two... I'll make it relevant, okay? So bear with me. We want to be the New England Patriots and not the Indianapolis Colts. Now, the Indianapolis Colts had a quarterback named Peyton Manning. Pretty much any of you know Peyton Manning. He's on commercials. He hosts the Saturday Night Live. And he was one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. He was actually, since 1998, did not miss a start. Incredibly dependable, won four MVPs, won a Super Bowl, unbelievably reliable. Unbelievably reliable. But you know what happened at the beginning of the season? He hurt his neck. He's out for the year. And the Colts, for... I think it's been 14 years have had an opportunity to develop a backup quarterback and they haven't. They haven't. They've had 14 years to develop a backup quarterback and now because one man got hurt and is injured, the team is atrocious. You can watch them tonight on Sunday Night Football and they are going to get hammered. They are terrible. They are terrible because for 14 years their system was built on one man being healthier or not. Now it's interesting because four years ago the New England Patriots had something very similar happen to them. They have a quarterback, Tom Brady. He's won numerous MVPs. He's won numerous Super Bowls. And four years ago, the first game of the season, he took a helmet to the knee towards ACL, MCL, out for the season. Out for the season. But you know what the Patriots had been doing behind the scenes this entire time? They had been developing another quarterback so that their entire team was not dependent on one man. And so they actually ended up having a pretty good season, even though their best player got hurt. And so in the same way the Summit Church wants to be the New England Patriots and not the Indianapolis Colts, my dream, my dream is that if I am biking through downtown, which I do frequently, and I get hit by a truck and I die, instead of this thing shutting down, what we say is we are not a church dependent on the good of one man. We are not a church dependent on the health of one man. We have been developing more men, more women behind the scenes to fill the gaps, to keep the mission going forward. Because in the end, the church is dependent on one man, but it's not me, it's not Andy, it's Jesus. And the good news is, is that senior pastor Jesus doesn't get sick, he doesn't die, he doesn't have moral failures, he doesn't preach bad sermons. Instead, senior pastor Jesus is the one man who never disappoints and is the one man who the entire hope of the church is built upon. And the good news is, is that he absolutely never fails. And so we want to rapidly, quickly be developing more men, more women to fill the gap and be ready to lead in the absence of me, in the absence of Andy. We want to have an army of men and women who are ready to lead and have been equipped to do so. But here's the thing. As Paul says, we want to be slow. We want to be slow to trust people with leadership. We want to be slow to trust people with leadership. Here's what Paul says in verse 22. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, I know this is kind of bizarre, but the laying on of hands is what the church would do when they, when they basically set somebody apart to go into ministry, when they would be ordained. He says, don't be hasty. Don't be eager. Don't be too quick to, lay peop- to put leadership Uh, on somebody. And he gives a reason why in verse 24. He says this, the sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Here's what Paul's doing. He's dealing with the iceberg principle of humanity, the iceberg principle of humanity. It's that you cannot tell 
the entirety of who a person is on an initial meeting. It, really, the reality is you can't tell about 99% of who a person is from an initial meeting, from a resume, through looking at their Facebook profile, from looking at their Twitter feed. You just, you just can't. You can't rush to judgment. All of you can relate to this. There's people who make great first impressions, but after a while, you recognize they're complete slime balls, and you wouldn't trust them with anything. You wouldn't trust them with your life. And on the other hand, there's people who make a terrible first impression, but after you get to know them, they're very faithful, they're, they're, they're very kind, and they just, they just were kind of underwhelming on the front in, but you would absolutely, absolutely trust them with your life. And what Paul is saying is you're not smart enough, you're not discerning enough, we're not talented enough to be able to meet somebody on a first, the first time and be able to say, hey, this is the type of man, this is the type of woman who should have a major role in the life of the church. Humanity is more complex than this. I've messed this up over and over and over again. There have been times when I've been in ministry where I put people into positions because they made a great at first impression and then I learned they weren't qualified for what I put them into. There's been times where I met people and you know, the, the initial impression, they were pretty underwhelming. And, and so I was like, you know what, that's a guy who, who, who will never lead in this church. And in the end, they end up leading. I was wrong. In fact, I remember back in April, just a few months ago, I got an email from a guy who was moving to Denver and um, he said he wanted to get together, and he was interested in our church, found our website, whatever. So, okay, okay, we'll, we'll get together and we'll do this. And, and I, I hadn't met this guy before, and so I did, you know, what I do anytime I, I have a meeting with somebody I don't know. I, I Facebook stalked, right? Right? All of you do the same thing, so, like, don't judge me. I mean, I Facebook stalked. I'm like, I'm going to check this guy out and try to learn who he is and who he isn't. And so I saw his profile, and I saw that he went to Bob Jones University. And if any of you know Bob Jones University, it's sort of this independent fundamentalist place in South Carolina, right outside of where Megan grew up. And I just kind of, I never met anybody from there before, but I just thought to myself, I mean, it's kind of the sad religious place where, like, women can't wear pants. And, I mean, it's just, it's like, like, this meeting is not going to go well, you know, like... I have a beard. I never wear a shirt with a collar on it. Like, we're going to end up debating whether or not women can cut their hair or not. Like, this is not going to go well. But a funny thing happened. We got together. We talked. I mean, we had a pretty good first meeting. We started hanging out. We talked on the phone. I mean, we just, we just started hanging out. I was like, man, this, this is a guy who's qualified to lead. Like, my initial first impression is wrong. And now he's my city group leader. It's Justin Almas, in case you didn't pick that up. Sorry to throw your alma mater under the, uh, the bus. Still creeps me out a little bit. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, in the end, what I realized in that moment is I'm not talented enough, discerning enough, wise enough, thoughtful enough just to look at a Facebook profile, just to look at a Twitter feed, just to look at a resume and say, hey, this is the type of person who should or shouldn't be trusted with leadership. Humanity is more complex, and it takes longer to learn the character of a man or a woman than that. And so we will quickly try to reproduce leaders in the life of our church, but we will be slow to trust people with just influence within the life of our church because the church is precious. The church is precious and we'll take care of it, we'll protect it, and we'll advance it. Here's what that means. If you want to lead, if you're a man, you're a woman in the life of our church and you want to lead, what it means then is just, just be patient, okay? Be patient and be faithful where God has you. Be faithful and prove yourself in the less glamorous things and realize in that process, in that process of you proving yourself, in that process of the agonizingly slow process of proving yourself, God is shaping you in a way that you can never be shaped. That's my story. That's my story. I went to a church in North Carolina also called The Summit, and I went to them telling them with this big dream, I want to plant a church in Denver, Colorado. Like, I'm ready to be sent out three months from now. You know what they said to me? They didn't say, that's great. We can't wait to do it. You know what they said to me? They said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to prove yourself. I want you to join the church, I want you to be a good member, and I want you to help park cars at the Saturday night service. And so I went out at the Saturday night service, and I wore an orange reflective vest, 
And I had flashlights, and I looked like the guys that were landing planes at the airport. And I just parked cars, and I did that for the glory of God. And you know what happened after I did that well enough? They said, you can lead the parking team. Congratulations, you can lead the parking team. You know what, after, what happened after I did that well? They said, you can head up all the volunteers who do everything to make a service happen. You know what happened after I did that well? They said, we're going to hire you. We're going to hire you to help start a new campus for our church. You know what happened after I did that well? They said, you can finally go out and you can start your own church in the city of Denver. That process lasted over two years, over two years. And it was agonizing. It was agonizingly slow because I had a vision of what God had called me to and I was ready to go to it. But in the process, in the process, in that agonizingly slow process, what I learned is this is the best thing that could possibly have happened to me because I had the vision for what God had called me to do, but I was not ready to do what God had called me to do. And in that process, in that proving process, God was shaping me, molding me, developing me in a way that I couldn't have possibly been developed. We want to be very, very quick. We want this church not to be built on one man. We want it to be set up in such a way that if I die, I know I'm talking a lot about me dying tonight, but if I die, that, that it's okay, that the church is okay. And the same thing with Andy. If Andy dies, the church is okay because it's not built on me, it's not built on him, it's built on Jesus. But at the same time, this church, this movement, what we've seen God do of growing something from a small cult-like gathering of 10 people in my living room to now a room full to the point that we're looking for new space in our neighborhood, that that is so precious, is that we don't just let anybody off the street come and lead. We don't. We don't just let anybody off the street come in and have influence. We have a proving process and we make sure people prove themselves. No healthy organization would ever let somebody come off the street and lead. And so we as a church will not do the same thing either. Why? Why? Because the movement, the movement that God has entrusted us with is absolutely precious. And that's what it comes down to. That is the heart of all of this. That's the major question, if this makes sense to you or not. Is, is the gospel precious to you? When you think about what God has done on your behalf, when you think about the fact that even though you were an enemy of God, that's what the Bible describes as somebody who is apart from Jesus. Even though you were an enemy of God, God, by his grace, chased after you and extended to you a grace and a love that is irresistible that he has extended that to every single one of you. And when you think about what God has saved you from, and and when I think about my own story, and what God has restored me from, and what God has forgiven me of, and what God has redeemed me from, and when I think about that, when I think about then the movement going forward and the importance of having good leaders in place, if the gospel is precious then, you don't think twice about paying your leaders well so they're not like farm animals that die in the process of working for the church. You don't because you say, you know what's really, really important? The movement going forward. And we're going to pay men. We're going to pay men and we're going to pay women to do this with absolute excellence. We're going to pay it so they can do it full time with their lives. It's that precious to us. In the same way, if the gospel is really precious, if the movement is absolutely precious, what you say then is when I have the tendency, when I have the desire to backbite, to gossip, when, it, when there's the appeal of something outlandish being thrown out about a leader, instead of participating in that, I'm going to put that to death. Why? Because more precious than me having a fun conversation is the movement going forward. And I love this family and I'm going to protect its leaders and I'm going to fight for the good of the family. That's what you do when you find something precious. And if you're one of those guys, if you're one of those girls who wants to do more in the life of our family, you're, you're patient. You're patient because you realize how precious this is. And you realize you don't just let anybody with a pulse have significant influence in the life of a mission. 
But instead you say, I'm patient, I'm going to be faithful. If I have to set up chairs for the glory of God for a year, I will set up chairs for the glory of God for a year because that is the sphere of influence that God has entrusted me with and I will prove myself to do that with character and with credibility. I will do that over and over and over again because the gospel is absolutely precious. The gospel gives rise to a new family called the church. This is our family. This is our local expression of this family. And that family is meant to have leaders, to help protect, to help advance, to help run the affairs of the family with excellence. It is the greatest privilege of my life. It's the greatest privilege. I mean, with the utmost sincerity. It is the greatest privilege of my life that this is what I've been able to give my life to. Is to running the affairs of the family. I love it. I thank you for it. I appreciate it. We're not, I'm not disgruntled. This isn't, this isn't an appeal for more money. This isn't an appeal for more honor. This isn't an appeal for more respect. But instead, it's more of an appeal to say, thank you. Thank you for what I get to do. Thank you for letting me be your pastor. And thank you for letting us uh, lead you the best that we possibly, possibly can. I'm going to pray. Uh, we're going to sing another song, and then we're going to celebrate somebody new joining the family. Okay? God, we thank you so much uh, for the family. We thank you so much that you have uh, heard our cry for community and we are not meant to just live in isolation, uh, but instead you have given us a new family called the church. And as we uh, try to to lead this family well, I pray for Andy and I, I pray for the other uh, men and women you put in places of leadership and influence, and I pray that we would do that humbly and we would do that sacrificially and we would do that with excellence. We do that with excellence. And in the end, that we would not receive the glory, we would receive the fame, but instead that we would see this church is built on the fame